KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Republicans are making plans if they win control of the House in November. Chris Lehman reports that their top targets include the NLRB and the Department of Labor. Chris is the nation's new D.C. Bureau Chief. Also later in the show, Patrick Leahy of Vermont. He's been a senator for almost 50 years. Today he describes how on January 6th, when senators took refuge from the mob attacking the Capitol, they prepared to complete the work of counting the electoral votes in their underground bunker until he insisted they should wait until they could return to the Senate chamber. His new book is The Road Taken. Finally, we'll have your Minnesota moment. It's state fair time in St. Paul. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. We reached him today, as usual, in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. And as usual, it's great to be here, John. Well, let's start today with news of the class struggle in America. Ten years ago, the SEIU launched a campaign to organize fast food workers and win a $15 minimum wage. But today, the union cannot claim any fast food workers as dues-paying members. And yet you say this campaign has not been a failure. Why not? Well, it has really changed a lot of the uh, socioeconomic policies of uh, the United States. Uh, it is very hard to unionize workers. That is under the purview of a, of a dysfunctional federal law, the National Labor Relations Act. But by backing this campaign, uh, SEIU first managed to convince a number of relatively progressive cities like Los Angeles, uh, and then relatively progressive states like California and New York to raise their minimum wages to the above mentioned $15 an hour, or in some cases, once that gets indexed as it is in California, even higher. In fact, the whole momentum uh, that's been behind raising the minimum wage in many states really was triggered by this campaign. Uh, so that's the first achievement. Uh, the second achievement is legislation that has now passed the California uh, state legislature and uh, is being conveyed to Governor Gavin Newsom, more on that in a minute, um, which creates really the first instance of what's called sectoral bargaining in the United States. Basically, that is when workers uh, are able to get uh, set standards and maybe a contract across an entire industry, not just uh, with individual companies. And we've had on the one hand, we've had things in the United States like what is called pattern bargaining, uh, when there were just big th the big three auto companies and one very powerful union, the UAW. UAW was basically able to win the same contract at Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler back in the day. That was pattern bargaining. Then we have had bodies that set minimum standards for an industry. Uh, there's been a lot of that, uh, it, although it doesn't get a lot of publicity. In 1935, for instance, uh, Congress passed uh, the Motor Carrier Act, which basically, you know, at a time when the depression was raging, it said, uh, you know, interstate truck companies 
are regulated so that they can't cut their rates below a certain figure. And that meant that they couldn't really cut wages below a certain figure. That sets a floor. And that means that, uh, you know, no company can achieve a competitive advantage uh, by being uh, horrendously lowball. Well, it took the Teamsters 30 years, but then they finally, using this as a vehicle and using the organizing drive of one Jimmy Hoffa, managed to unionize the entire interstate uh, uh, trucking population of, uh, of the country, which is obviously in the course of the last 40 uh, years since eroded. Uh, but we have never had a combination of those two things, of setting standards for an industry and really having workers sort of bargain with management to get a flat pattern across an industry. And that is exactly what the California legislature has just passed. They've created a council, uh, which will have 10 members, essentially four from uh, fast food employers and four uh, from fast food workers and two uh, appointees of the governor, whoever that may be, that will set standards for what is currently the 550,000 workers in the fast food industry uh, chains in California. Uh, and uh, it would set a minimum wage starting next year of 22 bucks an hour. It sets uh, cost of living increases. So it limits that to 3.5% a year. It does all kinds of things. Again, it does not make any of these workers union members. That's subject to a federal law but it really gives them an opportunity to set standards across a whole industry. But there's one big but at this point, Governor Gavin Newsom has not said he will sign this law, even though he's a Democrat in the most democratic state in the United States, why not? Well, uh, he's under a hell of a lot of pressure from the restaurant industry and the fast food industry and the business community generally not to sign the bill, to oppose the bill, because they say it will have an inflationary effect and uh, it will you know, actually in some ways raise the cost of food, which currently is one of the most uh, inflation-ridden commodities that we have. Uh, now, Newsom, Newsom's people already uh, in the terms of the Senate bill, they got the Senate bill to scale back a number of things that were in the Assembly's version of the bill. The Assembly passed it first. Uh, they scaled back, uh, they eliminated, in fact, uh, making uh, the big franchises like McDonald's uh, liable for uh, you know any violations of standards that might take place in individual franchises, that sort of thing. Newsom is in a very interesting place. SEIU, the union behind this, is the biggest union in California. It has 700,000 members. It's very active on Democrats' behalf, on Newsom's behalf, in the recall election of earlier this year. Uh, and Newsom is positioning himself as someone who's sort of on the left, not to the left, but on the left of the Democratic Party's center-left, uh, if and when there's a presidential campaign without Joe Biden, in Democratic primaries of 2024. So that argues for his signing the bill. On the, but he's scared. He's scared because uh, the their companies are going to 
go to war against him, saying he's a, you know, a cause of inflation. And of course, this is California. Those companies can mount a, you know, a, a ballot uh, initiative to repeal this law. And if the price of food keeps soaring, they, they may well succeed. You suggest in, in the prospect that it's hard to imagine that business won't put a gazillion dollars uh, behind an initiative campaign. That sounds ominous. Well, it is ominous. Uh, it's less ominous if uh, inflation in the food sector subsides. And, uh, you know, it is a saving grace that the first opportunity they would have to do this is a little more than two years from now, which gives the economy, you know, maybe some time to uh, calm down. Uh, they, they couldn't get it on the ballot until November of 2024. Uh, but, you know, th there's a whole lot of cross pressures on this. Last but not least, who gets the credit for this? You said the SEIU, but the SEIU is a big organization. Well, a lot of credit goes to the SEIU president, Mary Kay Henry. Um, when this campaign started, uh, there were people in the union who thought, yeah, we really can organize fast food workers. It became quickly apparent that that wasn't going to be the case. And the campaign was costing the union tens of millions of dollars every year. And they weren't getting a dime in increased dues payment as a result. Mary Kay Henry, over some internal opposition that was real, stuck with it and has really uh, been responsible for a series of laws and policies that have genuinely helped millions of low-income Americans and their families. Credit where credit is due. Well, next up, news about American manufacturing. Lots of news this week. Honda and LG Energy announced they would spend four and a half billion dollars to construct a new battery plant in the United States. That means they're going to join uh, General Motors, which has announced it's building in Ohio, Michigan, and Tennessee. Ford is building new plants in Kentucky and Tennessee. Toyota has announced it's building one in North Carolina. All of these are part of the switch to electric vehicles, one of the most profound shifts in the history of American manufacturing. Uh, Kentucky's governor, Andy Bashir, who is a Democrat, announced this week that Kentucky had secured more than $8.5 billion for investment in the production of electric vehicle batteries, which should produce more than 8,000 jobs for Kentucky. He said, quote, Kentuckians will literally be powering the future. Also this week, First Solar, which is the largest solar panel maker in the United States, announced that it would construct a new solar panel plant in the southeast, spending maybe a billion dollars there. AT&T announced it was going to build a new fiber internet plant in Arizona. This follows on the steps of Micron announcing a $40 billion investment, 40,000 new jobs in the United States. Qualcomm has committed to investing $4.2 billion in chip manufacturing in the United States. Intel 20 billion on a chip plant in Ohio. What is going on? Why is all this happening now? And who gets the credit? Well, the short answer, I guess, is uh, Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer. Uh, this is the result of uh, the passage and uh, signing into law of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really mainly uh, a, a clean energy act. 
you know, which which is funding, uh, g- giving corporations uh, the ability to uh, much with much less expense that they have to bear themselves switch to this kind of manufacturing. So that that's the headline. The subhead is how much of this is uh, supposed to take place in the anti-union South. Um, And for uh, the big auto companies, which are historically all unionized, uh, you know, it's a moment of nervousness for uh, like the UAW and and, and other such unions as to wondering whether they can uh, continue to represent all of the workers, let's say of uh, General Motors or Ford. Uh, and, you know, this follows the fact that uh, all of the European companies that have set up uh, auto manufacturing operations uh, have all gone to the south, even though they're all entirely unionized in Europe. Uh, same with Japan, um, even before this, uh, this drive towards clean energy, uh, regular fossil fuel uh, injected automobiles uh, have been built almost only in anti-union states when foreign companies have come over here to, to build autos and aircraft, I should add. Uh, you cited the Infrastructure Act, which, which I read is um, funding something like $42 billion on high-speed internet infrastructure alone, in addition to the solar uh, part of it. There was also this thing, that the CHIPS Act. Remind us what role that had to do with all of this. Well, the CHIPS Act was, uh, again, a huge funding of uh, uh, an industrial policy bill, uh, a bill that uh, said the government is uh, strategically going to bolster strategic industries. And in this case, semiconductor chips have become essential to all kinds of devices, machines, uh, you name it, uh, that uh, you know, in olden days, didn't need them. Uh, there's been a real shortage in car production in the United States because cars now require semiconductors. Uh, and, and so the CHIPS bill was a huge factor, uh, along with the clean energy legislation, in uh, causing this, really, this industrial renewal. And uh, Biden, you will remember, campaigned on promised that he could achieve a bipartisan solutions to America's problems. And we scoffed. We said that was ridiculous. But he did manage to recruit some Republican support for the passage of both of these things, didn't he? For the CHIPS and the Infrastructure Act, yes. For the clean energy stuff and the Inflation Reduction Act, no. I mean, some of this offers such a level of tangible reward to states and uh, corporations and the uh, actual existing economy that some Republicans felt compelled to vote for it. Not a lot in either case, but uh, a number. I think it was just the minimum required uh, to uh, to defeat a filibuster, wasn't it? They got 10 senators to vote for the CHIPS, Republicans to vote for the CHIPS Act? Yes, they did. Next topic, the LA mayoral race. There's a new poll from the LA Times this week that shows Karen Bass has widened her lead over billionaire developer Rick Caruso. They reported um, 43% for Karen Bass, only 31% for Rick Caruso, 24% undecided. In the primary, she beat Rick Caruso 43 to 36. That means Caruso's share of the electorate has fallen from 36 to 31% since the primary. What, What is going on here? 
Well, Caruso is, I think, has always been a bit of a long shot in Los Angeles because Los Angeles is a profoundly capital D democratic city. And Caruso has been a Democrat uh, for, uh, I would say, less than 30 weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's also, uh, you know, suffering the consequences of his having backed Republican candidates who were anti-abortion and anti-choice and having made some statements of his own uh, belief in that in that regard uh, many years ago, uh, which is something that's coming around to bite uh, many Republican candidates. uh, Even now, we know in places like upstate New York and Kansas. And so I think Caruso has a very tough uh, road ahead of him. He will clearly spend a gazillion dollars. Uh, but, you know, the fact that this election, as L.A. mayoral elections in the past have not, the fact that this election coincides with the general election in which voters will be in Los Angeles going to the polls to vote basically all Democratic uh, for all Democratic elected officials and for a constitutional amendment that uh, puts uh, the right to an abortion in the Constitution. None of that augurs well for Rick Caruso, and it augurs pretty damn well for Karen Bass. The only place in the city where Rick Caruso still has a plurality in this new poll is the San Fernando Valley. It's notable going back at least to the Tom Bradley's first run for mayor. I think it was 1970, the first black candidate for mayor. 1969. You're right. It was in the off years. 1969, the valley was anti-black. And here we are more than 50 years later, and the Valley is still the basis of the vote against Karen Bass. Well, the Valley isn't as uh, what it was uh, in 1969. None of us are. Uh, (laughs) And it is certainly more liberal than it was then. It has very different demographics uh, than it had then. But uh, I, I don't think it will provide for Rick Caruso the kind of support that in 1969 it provided for uh, Tom Bradley's opponent, the incumbent mayor, Sam Yorty. One one little story uh, that caught my attention about labor organizing in L.A., the legendary Chateau Marmont on Sunset Strip, the star-studded hotel for uh, stars to hide out has agreed to let its workers unionize in one of the big union battles of the last year or two. The owner had announced he'd rather convert it to a members-only club than unionize, but um, members of Unite Here Local 11 got an NLRB election, which they won, and the owner is now... uh, now that the results have been validated, the owner has announced he will bargain with uh, Local 11, even this legendary Chateau Marmont. Yeah, except Local 11 is pretty pretty legendary, too. They've yes. won decades-long campaigns. They've won remarkable first contracts, including back in the 1990s, contracts that said if their members uh, were undocumented and deported, uh, the hotel would hold their job open for them for two years <laughs> if they could come back. Wow. And if they came back within one year, with they would still have their seniority rights. Wow. So Local 11 is a completely remarkable uh, local union going back to the end of the 1980s when it had new leadership under Maria Elena Durazo, now a California state senator. Uh, also, you know, 
partly because of its cachet. I mean, it's the only hotel that can claim John Belushi died here. <laughs> uh, partly because of its cachet, Chateau Marmont can, you know, charge a fortune for its rooms and can really afford to pay its uh, <laughs> workers a good union scale wage. One last thing I know our listeners have been waiting. When are they going to talk about Donald Trump? Well, my Ooh. favorite <laughs> my favorite headline of the week, Trump demands a new 2020 election right now. Uh, the former president says, this is from his replacement Twitter account, the FBI buried the Hunter Biden laptop story before the election, knowing that if they didn't, Trump would have easily won the 2020 presidential election. He concludes, this is massive fraud and election interference at a level never before seen in our country. What is to be done? Trump says we should hold another vote, a new 2020 election. That would be, he says, the minimal solution to this massive crime against the people, but that he'd rather just be declared the winner. I wonder if you have any comment. Well, the second alternative is certainly simpler than the first. The first, <laughs> one of the traditional raps on conservatism is people want to take us back in time. Uh, Trump, uh, I think, takes that more literally than most. So let's let's just leave it there. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And always a pleasure to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The political landscape for the fall is looking a lot better since Joe Biden signed that big climate and health care bill and abolished a lot of student debt. And things are looking a lot worse for the Republicans since the Supreme Court abolished constitutional protection for abortion rights. Now it looks like the Democrats may hold the Senate and do significantly better in the House races than had been predicted. The Cook Political Report now estimates the likely Republican margin in the House after the, the election may be as little as 10 seats instead of 30 or 40, which had been the prediction a few months ago. But 10 seats still means the Republicans are likely to control the House when they meet again next January. What are their priorities there? For comment and analysis, we turn to Chris Lehman. He's the nation's new DC bureau chief and the former editor of The Baffler and The New Republic, former DC correspondent for The New York Observer, senior editor at CQ Weekly. And he's held positions at New York Magazine, Washington Post, Book World, and Newsday. He's the author of two books, most recently, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. He'll be Chris Lehman. Welcome to the program. Thanks much, John. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to be at The Nation. Well, it's still a long time until Election Day in November, but Republicans have been planning what they will do if they gain control of the House. What do we know about their priorities beyond going after Hunter Biden? Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, you know, for a long time, obviously, uh, the GOP has weaponized its House majority to conduct these kind of high-profile oversight 
media spectacles. You, you probably remember Trey Gowdy's uh, grilling of Hillary Clinton over the Benghazi affair. Devin Nunez used his seat on the Intelligence Committee to uh, basically slow walk anything uh, having to do with any hints of um, collusion, to use an infamous word from the 2016 election cycle um, between the Trump campaign and, and Russia and other oligarchic types. <laughs> and, um, you know, you would expect coming into a new majority that the Republicans would be laying plans to have endless forensic interrogations of what's on Hunter Biden's laptop or how Merrick Garland came to stage the uh, search of Mar-a-Lago for classified sensitive documents. However, there was a recent um, item in a newsletter from Politico indicating that one of the top priorities is going to be tar targeting the National Labor Relations Board and also the Department of Labor uh, for intensive grilling from the Education and Labor Committee. Uh, Virginia Fox, who is an old hard right, actually pre-Trump, kind of red meat uh, Republican, told Politico that she jokes that they're going to be holding up to two hearings a day. And it's an interesting, uh, I think, window onto what's really at stake in this midterm cycle. Uh, the Republicans understand all too well that, um, you know, their donor base is obviously heavy corporate and very pro-business and regressive on labor issues. And one of the really striking things in the Biden administration thus far is the NLRB has been really aggressive and good from a you know standpoint of democrat social democratic politics in sanctioning new union drives and getting the uh, drive to organize starbucks and uh, amazon these sort of new cohort of service workers who had previously not achieved union recognition are, are getting attention let's just review that the the national labor relations board has been around since the mid-30s one of the great achievements right. of the new deal that's the independent agency right. that runs elections where workers get to vote on whether they want a union or not. Right. You mentioned the famous Staten Island warehouse of, of right. Amazon as the most recent case, and it protects workers trying to organize unions from unfair retaliation. We record in LA. In LA just last week, the NLRB said Starbucks cannot give right. raises to workers who don't join the union and deny them to workers who do. And the Republicans have been after the NLRB for a long time. When there's a Republican president, they don't yeah. nominate people to it's right. NLRB. Well, explain how the NLRB is run. Who, who's in yeah. charge? Well, you know, the executive branch is in charge, but it's interesting because once you have um, a lead counsel on the board, it functions a little like the Supreme Court, you know, and that's why the NLRB has been able to intervene in these high profile lab labor struggles on the behalf of workers is Abruzzo, the, the head. Jennifer she, Abruzzo. Let's yes. underline that. Jennifer. Name, a very yes. important yes. person. You know, you don't hear her bandit, her name bandied out uh, much on cable TV or whatever. But yeah, she's she has done really good work in transforming the landscape of organizing and the NLRB, thanks to the National Labor Relations Act, which secured the right to collective bargaining in the workplace, is the means by which workers can safely organize without fear of retaliation, as you cited in the Starbucks case in, in LA. So it is really a pillar of 
you know, workers' health organization and social democracy. And it's interesting, um, just today I, was, I saw a Gallup poll showing that American support for unions is at the highest level it's been since 1965. 71% wow. of uh, wow. respondents in this poll said they are pro-union. And so one of the interesting things, you know, if you think about the stakes of this election cycle and, you know, there are a lot of uh, self-styled savants in the democratic policy world who champion this cause of popularism, which I'm skeptical of. But in this case, here's something that looks pretty goddamn popular. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's interesting and instructive that it hasn't, you know, rocketed up to the, the top of democratic priorities. You know, I think the party is counting on Trump to be a divisive figure, as yeah. he always is, and to sort of lie back and, and let the midterms kind of wash over him rather than putting forward an aggressive pro-worker case, which, you know, the elements are there. There is Biden's NLRB, which is a real achievement to this administration. Yes, um, and, l- and let me just emphasize there that for couple of decades, the NLRB yeah. was really pretty much absent. The Irrelevant, general counsel yeah. and the five-person board are nominated by the president. So when there's a Republican right. president, if there's an now, opening... Now, Trump's NLRB was awful, you know, and so <laughs> Biden had, you know, first to un- the challenge of undoing all the terrible things, the pro, you know, management crap that came out of, of Trump's NLRB. And then once Jennifer Abruzzo was in, she was able to, you know, build on that. And when there's a Democratic president, but the Republicans control the Senate, Conference. the Senate has to confirm and they, they nominees block, right, and right. they can block uh, appointees and leave uh, the, the NLRB without a quorum, which indeed was the case for, yep. what, a decade or something yep. like that. And yeah. Then, yeah, and another side effect of all this is the NLRB has been grievously underfunded. It's you know taken on much more work now with this new wave of organizing. And, you know, still in all the continuing budget resolutions, Democrats in Congress and and the Biden White House haven't given it the budget it needs. There's another continuing resolution that's the cycle begins in October. And I think it would be really smart politics for the Democratic leadership in Congress and the Biden White House to say, look, you know, this the Republicans want to go after your right to democracy in the workplace. We're going to set aside a lot of money for this crucial agency that has done a lot to vindicate your rights as as workers. To me, it's just simple politics, you know, just yeah. again, look at that 71% number that is, you know, that should have Democratic strategists salivating. But as we know, there are problems in the Democratic Party, right? <laughs> they haven't really been a pro-worker party s- since the height of New Deal policymaking. And a lot of the work of the New Democrats from Bill Clinton onward has been to undo the historic alliance between organized labor and the Democratic parties. So you're in this awkward position. We were talking about Starbucks earlier and Howard Schultz, the aggressively you know, union-busting CEO, was touted as a potential presidential candidate. It is recently as 2020. And Hillary Clinton said that she was prepared to make him her labor secretary. Wow. (laughs) After the, you know, when she thought she was going to win in 2016. So that's a big issue. You know, you've got a donor base in the Democratic Party that is also not pro labor. There's something called the Workplace Choice and Responsibility Act before Congress. You could always know a piece of crappy legislation by the euphemistic names they give it. It's a Workplace Choice and Flexibility Act. Sorry. I'm not up on my new economy jargon. 
And, uh, you know, that is basically, speaking of California, a federal codification of Prop 223, which creates all sorts of obstacles for employees in the so-called gig economy to organize and to achieve uh, fair wages and hours and benefits. And the co-sponsor of that is Henry Cuellar, who is famously Nancy Pelosi's handpicked candidate for uh, the 28th district in Texas over a much more progressive candidate who he got a lot of attention and properly so because he's anti-abortion. Um, the only anti-abortion and, Democrat left right, in the House. Pretty much. And, uh, and you look at the Workplace Choice and Flexibility Act and you think, this is the kind of choice that Henry Cuellar <laughs> is in favor of? Anyway. Republican leaders in the House have already released this, uh, a, a letter with a formal complaint against the NLRB yep. that the NLRB has, quote, colluded with labor unions to tilt election results in right. favor of unionization at Starbucks and Amazon. Uh, how can they make this case? Well, you know, the Republican Party, especially in matters of elections, are they're prone to conspiratorial fantasy. <laughs> Good point. I mean, so um, I think the NLRB arguably is doing its job <laughs> in ensuring the rights of workers to organize. Republicans are just obviously unhappy with the results. Um, and so they're going to claim there are conflicts of interest. They're going to claim there are improprieties in how the NLRB you know, conducts its business. But you're a historian. If you look across the broad sweep of what the NLRB was founded to do, it's pretty much what it's doing now. You can't really find anything in its legislative mandate that is a bright line difference from securing the, the rights of Starbucks workers to organize. In your new piece at thenation.com, you make the point that the Republicans are not going to run on taking down the NLRB. They're, they right. they want to conceal this. And one of their big issues, you say, is going to be the new IRS funding that the Democrats have right. approved, $80 billion more for the IRS. I saw right. that in an interview at Fox, Chuck Grassley uh, uh, my the, old senator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> raise the yeah. specter of an IRS strike force, quote, that goes in with AK-15s already loaded, <laughs> ready to shoot some small business person in Iowa, close quote. Is that a harbinger <laughs> of what kind of uh, discourse we're going to have in the fall? Uh, I think we've got it already. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, speaking of conspiratorial fantasy, there you go. I mean, actually, the IRS is another grievously underfunded agency under Trump. It, it basically stopped auditing earners over $400,000 a year. And, um, you know, it has a workforce that's aging and, and needs to be replenished. And, you know, the actual language in the IRA legislation, you know, is to direct these new auditors at people who are not small businessmen, who are not bartenders and waiters. Um, you know, there was also a leaked tape from a GOP fundraiser recently where Steve Wynn, who is as corrupt a figure as you can imagine, he's a Las Vegas or former casino mogul um, who's now facing a Justice Department in investigation for alleged violations of the Foreign Agents Act and um, a slew of lawsuits alleging, let's just say, misconduct, including sexual harassment during his tenure. But he, of course, told Ronald McDaniel, the head of the RNC, that given the new electoral realities before the Republicans, they should start cutting ads, 
claiming that the IRS is going to go after bartenders and waiters. And to me, again, this is just like staring you right in the face. Like I want, you know, whatever the democratic equivalent of not Ilya Adwater, because he was racist and awful, but, you know, someone with a bit of imagination and brio (laughs) to uh, cut ads in response saying like the Republican party is wanting to do Steve Wynn's bidding and demonize you workers and lie about what the IRS is up to. It's, it seems like a fat pitch over the inside of your plate to me. But again, as I was saying earlier, there are these institutional problems within the Democratic Party where um, their commitment to issues of economic justice is conditional, let's just say. Democrats need some imagination and brio in defending (laughs) unions and collecting taxes. Chris Lehman, he's the nation's new D.C. Bureau chief. Chris, thanks for this report. We'll be speaking again soon. Great. My pleasure, John. And you can read Chris Lehman, of course, at thenation.com. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk with Patrick Leahy. Of course, he's the senior senator from Vermont and the longest-serving member of the Senate. After almost 50 years there, he's announced he will not run for a ninth term this fall. He's just written a memoir, The Road Taken. We reached him today in Washington, D.C., It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Senator Patrick Leahy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. This is a great program, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on it. Well, I learned from your memoir that in your first campaign for the Senate in 1974, both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden were part of the story. Tell us about that. Bernie ran ran as a Liberty Union Party, as, as a socialist and a third-party candidate. Now, remember, Vermont was the only state in the union that never elected a, a Democrat to the Senate, and certainly never elected any senator as young as, as I. And so um, I had asked him why he was, why he was uh, running, because he was taking mostly votes for me as a candidate on the left, and, and we got along fine. And, he said, well, you can't win anyway. So I, <laughs> I get my name known, and, and he got 5% of the vote. And I, I won by about 1% or 2% of the vote. And uh, Joe, Joe Biden was sent by the Democratic Party to come up and just speak at a Democratic gathering. Well, the Democratic gathering, we probably had a dozen people. I, <laughs> I, he was going on from there to another state. And, but we got along fine because we were the two youngest people there. And uh, in fact, the press didn't even mention that I was there. They mentioned that the youngest senator and uh, Joe Biden was there. And over the years, we've always uh, teased about that. But it was it was nice to meet him. And they uh, is very open, very friendly, talked with everybody, remembered everybody's name. And 
Then when I got elected, I came in and we were the two youngest members of the U.S. Senate. We were we were the kids, and I think that bonded bonded us more than anything else. And how different was Bernie in 1974? Was he giving the same stump speech he gives today? Income inequality, oh, yeah. corporate Listen, power. I, I, I drove on the campaign trail. If he got laryngitis or anything, I'd give his speech for him because <laughs> I memorized it. Yeah, it's basically the same speech, and I'll give him credit for that. He's he's always stayed uh, consistent, uh, and the I think people in Vermont. Uh, grown to appreciate him giving the speeches. And uh, so we we get along fine. Well, today we think of Vermont, of course, as the land of you and Bernie, of Ben and Jerry, deep blue. It's the state where Joe Biden got the biggest margin of any state, 66%. But of course, as you say, when you started out in Vermont politics in the 70s, it was not a democratic state. No. Uh, how and why did Vermont change from red to blue? Well, I think a lot of us can take some credit spending time exposing people to different, different viewpoints. We've also had uh, new people moving in, uh, younger people want to listen to other ideas. And also, I think Vermont has sort of taken things for, for granted that they'd be Republican. I remember uh, we had our last election, we elected a, a Republican for governor, a Democrat for lieutenant governor. <laughs> and so there's still tickets played. In fact, since uh, uh, 1960, when Phil Hoff became the first Democrat in modern times to win as governor, we got a Democratic governor, next one a Republican, next one Democrat, next one Republican. It's gone literally back and forth uh, each time. And but I remember when I was a young student at, a, at St. Michael's College at that time, all male, uh, predominantly Catholic, and I'm out not old enough to vote, but uh, campaigning for John Kennedy. Hmm. And people are telling me, well, we don't like Nixon, but you can't expect us to vote for a Catholic <laughs> uh, for president. Uh, I thought that uh, a memory I had when 14 years later I ran for the U.S. Senate. But it was, <laughs> I think it was the John Kennedy, uh, Phil Hoff, and others started a change. And then it's, it's been individuals. Now we vote more the individual than the party. Well, today we think of the Senate as one of our biggest uh, political problems. It's an undemocratic body where small states are wildly overrepresented, states like Wyoming and Vermont. It's a body with even more uh, undemocratic rules. Of course, the filibuster that has made it almost impossible to pass legislation favored by big majorities of Americans. Uh, is this the way you see the Senate today? Well, I, I wanted to think of the Senate as being the conscience of the nation. And at times it has been. Obviously it wasn't in the early years of segregation, but with the push of Lyndon Johnson and some key Republicans, that changed. Uh, when I came there, Republicans and Democrats worked together. And I'll give you one example. And I talked to both of 
these senators as a young senator and listen to them. When the Republican leader of the Senate and Barry Goldwater, who was Mr. Conservative, went down to the uh, White House to tell Richard Nixon he had to leave. Now, that was Hugh Scott, also Mr. Republican. Yeah. And I asked them what they thought about it. And they said, we took no joy in that, none whatsoever. But we thought for the sake of the country and for the integrity of the Senate, we had to do it. And the fact that we were doing it, uh, the president would have to listen far more than if it came from the Democratic side. And I, I've never forgotten that. And I, then I saw people working things out together, both parties, Bob Doe and George Mitchell would meet two or three times a day as Republican Democratic leader. Uh, certainly disagreed on issues, but said, let's, let's bring it to a vote. Uh, not a filibuster, but a vote. We'll have a debate, may go on for two or three days, and then we'll vote. That's the way the Senate should be. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote my book, uh, The Road Taken, is to show the arc of what the Senate was when I came there. Obviously, as an idealistic 34-year-old former prosecutor. But to see how well it works when it works well, and how badly and polarized it's become. And then the uh, shocking aspect of January 6th, and a realization that there are large segments of the U.S. population that don't get their news from factual sources. Uh, they get made-up news on, uh, on the Internet or elsewhere or by partisan groups and how politicized we've come, and the fact that people will find a source of news that appeals to them, not having read any history, not understanding it. During the insurrection and the mobs going through the Capitol, they were claiming, well, the Constitution has invited them there. I was thinking, have you ever read the Constitution? <laughs> If you have, find me the place. Find me the place in the Constitution that says a mob bent on destruction, putting up a noose to hang the Vice President Mike Pence. Show me in the Constitution where that's encouraged. I want to get back to January 6th in a minute, but a few things before that. You were on the Judiciary Committee for a long time. 1991, Joe Biden was chair of the Judiciary Committee. You were a member Clarence Thomas was nominated, and Anita Hill testified against him. You quizzed both Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas very carefully about their testimony. It's still on C-SPAN, very easy to find. I wonder, thinking about those hearings today, whether you think they were handled right? Well, I felt that I handled it right because I asked them both questions, and then I stated publicly that I believed Anita Hill. And I did not believe Clarence Thomas. And that was a major reason why I voted against him. It wasn't uh, philosophical reasons, but I felt he had not told the truth. I felt she had. And everybody should have been able to make up their own, own mind on that. Turned into histrionics and uh, Federalist Society pushing for Clarence Thomas and other right-wing groups. I, I think it was very bad. 
I, I think um, people should have listened to that. I wish there had been more witnesses or at least one more witness who would back what uh, Nita Hill was saying. But I made it very clear that I believed her. And when did you first become aware of Donald Trump? When did you first realize he could become president? Well, I'd seen him at the correspondence dinner and things like that. I'd heard a lot about him and seemed to be kind of a make-believe world. But as I watch him just piling on one misstatement after another and people accepting it, I thought, you know, if he would make some misstatement, the press seemed to feel, well, we, we have to say that at such, such a time, Hillary Clinton didn't have her facts right. Well, she may, that may have been once. They would have to balance that every time against his thousand uh, yeah. misstatements of fact. And I, I really worried about that. And I saw Hillary Clinton, somebody that those of us who served her in the Senate knew her before as first lady, knew that in private, you know, she not only an extraordinarily intelligent person, very humorous, very down to earth, and it's almost like she was being controlled in uh, what she said. And I felt he was going to might win. Now, I've had interesting encounters with him. One, especially the Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill started a program that every St. Patrick's Day, they'd have a luncheon for Republicans and Democrats, usually with an Irish name, and the president would come. And it actually made a lot of sense. People could just forget party and go along. Well, I'm standing there with Enda Kenny, who was at that time the Prime Minister of Ireland. Donald Trump comes in and he says, oh, I see you're here with my good friend, Pat. Well, we call him Patrick uh, today. Great senator, wonderful man. He's climbing in the back. I'm kind of looking at him like, I think we'd met maybe once. And, uh, oh, we just, you know, my neighbor from Vermont, wonderful, wonderful leader in the Senate, and walks off. Prime Minister is watching, turns to me, says, well, now, Pat, he is supposed he has any idea who you are. And I said, no, he doesn't. <laughs> now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. In 2017, Al Franken, the senator from Minnesota, one of the leading liberals of the Senate, was pressured to resign after a conservative talk radio host accused him of having forced an unwanted kiss on her 10 years earlier. And then other women joined in with complaints of unwanted hugs. Uh, the campaign to force him out was led by a New York Democrat, Kirsten Gillibrand, who was planning to run for president. In retrospect, what do you think about the campaign to pressure Al Franken to resign? Well, a number of people had signed a letter raising questions. I was probably the last one to, to sign. I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders and others were urging us to sign it. And after about a day or so, I said, no, take my name back off. Hmm. I called out and said, uh, no, that was a mistake. The matter is before the Senate Ethics Committee. You should have had a hearing. You have both Republicans and Democrats on the Ethics Committee. Let them make the decision. He said he appreciated that. He would keep my confidence. I said, no, no, I'm going to send you a letter saying there was a mistake to sign it. It should have been heard by the Ethics Committee. And 
you have my permission to release the letter, say I made a mistake. And and he did. You know, we've been friends. He's one of the brightest people I, I know served in, in the Senate. He was on the Judiciary Committee, although not a lawyer, but he would come better prepared than many of the lawyers on the Judiciary Committee. I don't know what the Ethics Committee, what they would have decided, but he did not have due process and he should have. Okay, January 6th, really the dramatic culmination of your uh, memoir, The Road Taken. You report that when you and the rest of the senators had taken refuge in a secure, undisclosed location, the Senate prepared to convene in a special session in that bunker. Tell us about that. Well, you know, under the, under the rules of the Senate, we can vote to meet anywhere. I think about the only time we haven't met in the Capitol was uh, after 9-11, we went to New York and met in the building where the first Congress had met just to show support from Republicans and Democrats to New York and against the, the terrorists. So technically, we could do it. I stood up and I said, no, I got really heated. Uh, I said, I'm the dean of the Senate. I've been here the longest. No, I don't want to do that. It may take them three or four or five or six hours to reopen the Senate chamber by the time the bomb-sniffing dogs came through and everything. But let's wait. Let's wait. We're here with six-year terms. Let's wait and then go back where the American public can see us. We owe it to the American public to see us, whether we agree with what happened or not. And I got a standing ovation from Republicans and Democrats. People agreed afterward. They said, of course, there's a thing to do. We owe it to the American people to see us. Patrick Leahy's new memoir is titled The Road Taken. Senator, thank you for fighting the good fight in the Senate for almost 50 years. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. And I look forward to being back home in Vermont very, very soon. Finally, it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. It's state fair time in St. Paul. People go to the fair for, of course, the food, the rides, the live music, and the farm animals. But for the state's elected officials, politicking at the fair is a tradition they dare not break. Slighting the fair is one of the best ways to make enemies of Minnesotans, says University of Minnesota political science professor Tim Lindbergh. That may be the reason why Minnesota's two senators, Democrats Amy Klobuchar and Tina Smith, make time to go to the fair, even though neither is up for re-election this year. Klobuchar says, quote, I have never missed the fair. She cited the butter carving in the dairy building, portrait busts of the candidates for Princess K of Milky Way as one of her favorite stops. Suburban Minneapolis Congressman Dean Phillips, also a Democrat, says he's attended the state fair for 52 years and is proud of a photo taken at his first one that shows him as a shaggy-haired blonde kid happily riding a tractor. He's the only U.S. House candidate with a booth at the fair. There he's giving away packets of wildflower seeds that say, Let's grow together American, a centrist slogan if there ever was one. At the Democratic Party booth, that's the DFL in Minnesota, Democratic Farmer Labor, people were lining up to meet State Attorney General Keith Ellison. 
The DFL booth is selling a t-shirt that says, row, row, row your vote, row spelled R-O-E. The fair had a small role in American political history. Back in September 1901, then Vice President Theodore Roosevelt pitched his foreign policy in a speech in which he said for the first time, the United States should, quote, speak softly and carry a big stick. This has been your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul, and a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.